Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Bike Rumor Podcast. And this time I've got Zach and Greg on the show with me. So there's no interview with anybody outside. What we thought we'd do is talk about the trends and the things and the bikes and the components that we saw at Sea Otter 2019. Because there was a ton. This was the biggest show ever for them. Something like, I think, 30% growth. I don't know. But there was at least 100 or so more booths than normal. They had to expand the footprint of it. And it was just so much to see. So Greg, I was really stoked that you could join us out there. We had an extra body to run around with a camera and notes and cover all the stuff glad to be there time of my life we're gonna start before the show as far as what's going on zach you and i get invited to a ton of stuff greg you went to a few events you know and this is the i like to call it the pre-otter because you know basically we just know even before we get invited to stuff just show up monday morning make sure you're there on monday because inevitably tuesday wednesday is going to be slam full of events and we had to divide and conquer what were some of the cool pre-show things you guys saw? Well, the uh, obviously, now that we can talk about it, the new Ibis Ripley. That uh, was a pretty fantastic bike. It was a great ride out there in Santa Cruz. And, uh, yeah, it was just a great day on the bike. And then that sort of transitioned into the Wahoo Rome launch down in Monterey. So another uh, really great ride out on the 17-mile road there with the Wahoo crew. And got a chance to check out the computer firsthand. Greg? Cool. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, the stuff that I saw is still under embargo, so I can't quite uh, let the cat out of the bag. But uh, they did say we could sort of tease it, so I can say it's uh, Cannondale. There's something new. Uh, it's a new theme, new product, kind of new category they're trying to create. So it was a fun event. Got to ride around, um, and that's that's about all I can say for now. Right on. <laughs> yeah. So while you were out, Zach, on the uh, Wahoo thing. I was headed over to see Alchemy Bikes. They have a new new gravel bike for them, which is pretty exciting looking, something they've been working on for a long time. And then they did their short travel version of the Arctos. And then, uh, yeah, I think from there we kind of rounded up and headed into the show to work on all of the pre-show emails and everything that people love to send out at the very last minute. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey, here's yeah. our new product. Please come see us. Like, you can, ah, man. Book an appointment. Please. Yeah, book an appointment. Do not wait the until the week show. before Sea Otter to do that. <laughs> yes, please. So, note to brands, you know, give us a couple of weeks heads up so that we can plan better. Because honestly, by the time Wednesday afternoon rolls around, I'm almost not even checking email until the show's over because we're just so busy running around taking notes and everything. And so, like, I got home and like a week later, I'm like, oh yeah, sorry, you wanted a meeting. <laughs> I didn't see this until <laughs> five days after the show was over. Yep. Yeah. All right. So yeah. show starts walking around. I think all three of us agree that the biggest segment there, the biggest interest, the most launches were gravel related from bikes to wheels to tires and everything else. You know, just the general theme. Everyone, I think, knows they need a gravel bike to sort of be relevant right now. Um, what did you guys notice? I'd say in addition to um, just gravel, a lot of e-gravel, e-road, just sort of e-drop bar bikes was huge and it's uh forcing some brands to rethink their strategy and um brands that wouldn't otherwise get into it are, are now considering it so that was that was big um 
otherwise for gravel, I'm trying to think there was a lot of um, interesting spec, uh, more micro shift than I would have ever expected. Hmm. Uh, riser drop bars, um, that, that seems to be sort of the standard now. And I asked a couple brands, and they're like, look, people are, they love gravel, but they want a higher position, but they don't want the look of a giant head tube. So we're going to give them a riser drop bar. Yeah, or um, a giant stack it, of spacers, right? Because that's even right. uglier. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that seems to be to be uh, big. What about you, Zach? I think, I think what we were seeing out there was that, you know, gravel is finally starting to move from this, like, real niche, like, endurance race only focus category to more of a, I don't know, I, I guess I could, you could call it like a Fondo type thing where a lot more people are getting involved in it because of that more companies are adding, you know, bikes, tires, wheels, you name it, the price points are dropping and it's sort of, uh, it's sort of becoming a lot more accessible to a lot of people. And I think you can see that by walking around and looking at the show because there were there were gravel-oriented products just about everywhere, and it wasn't just at the, you know, the pinnacle. There were there were a lot of interesting bikes, steel options that were affordable from brands like Marin, Noble. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of new product, but you know, not just focused on that hardcore race market. Yeah. Well, and Tyler, one thing you mentioned was there you were seeing a decent amount of sort of all road type bikes, which are not quite gravel bikes. They maybe have a 30 millimeter tire or so. And I was kind of thinking that that category would die with the growth of gravel. Like, Oh, people are just going to go straight road or all the way to a 40 millimeter tire on a gravel bike. And, uh, there seems to be a thriving market of that sort of in between all road bike. Um, I've got one now from, uh, Norco, they do a full line of, I think, carbon, aluminum, maybe. I'm not sure if they do steel, but there was that, that seems to be doing better than I thought. Yeah, that's uh, I was going to add on to what Zach was saying about the gravel kind of growing and expanding is it's almost what I saw was sort of like it's getting split a little bit. You have the adventure-style gravel bike that can kind of do everything, fit the biggest tires, has all the, the frame mounts for frame bags, bento box, you know, possibly a rack, fenders for sure. And then there's a few that are actually doing something a little more race specific, which is kind of cool because if you're going to gravel race, maybe you, you don't really need like a little bit longer chain stay and a little slacked out front end. You actually want something that's going to handle a little snappier, be lighter, and it doesn't need all of those accessory mounts. Um, so yeah. it's, I think the broader market's going to want the, the more uh, functional, I guess, would be, or the more versatile frames, but there are going to mm -hmm. be some race options. And then, like you said, the all-road, you know, like even the new, this one's kind of a weird mashup. I was working on this story just before we started this call, is the new Sage Titanium Skyline disc. And what he did is he's got a, basically a bike with race geometry, but it'll fit 32-millimeter tires, and it's got some pretty uh, you know, tuned thin seat stays so you get a little bit of compliance. So he's got a race bike that's made for comfort on an all-day ride too, which is kind of a, to me, that's a little odd, but I guess, mm -hmm. you know, if you want one good bike that you can race and train on, that would sort of be it. Well, I think we're seeing that more with uh, actually one-by drivetrains because you can shorten the chain stays and get that race geometry and still fit a big tire because there's no front derailleur in the way. That was, that was historically kind of a, a limiting factor. Um, and another bike that sort of did that uh, early on was the Surly Midnight Special. You wouldn't think of that as like a race bike, but if you actually look at the geometry, it's got a pretty steep uh, head tube angle, and they're calling it 
I think Rode Plus, and I I've uh, I owned one of those for quite a while, and it felt quick in the turns. It was a legitimate, you know, fast feeling road bike that could fit 2.35 inch mountain bike tires. It was insane. So it's a it's a fun new category. The other thing, Greg, you saw a lot of you mentioned was wheels, and you had an interesting take on it. Yeah, gravel wheels. I saw a bunch. There's still some that are we can't talk about yet. Um, but there's a lot of good wheels that I think uh, they might have trouble to differentiate because uh, these brands are trying to hit kind of reasonable price points. They want tubeless compatibility. They want durability. They want all these things. And a lot of them end up looking kind of similar from the consumer's perspective. And again, they're good wheels, but sort of the the sell these days is becoming kind of compatibility which is is a little tough you know they say in advertising you're you're not selling the steak you're selling the sizzle and when the sizzle is like we fit all these uh different through axles and free hubs and it's you're selling the fact that it works with everything but that's not as sexy as like a new arrow shape or something like that so um i think it's it's good for for consumers because there are so many choices and price point conscious choices uh, but the brands are going to really have to get creative in how to stand out and sell these things. Yeah, well, I think, I think that's the struggle. Sorry, Zach, that's the struggle of the Aero Road Wheels had is it got to the point where everybody was claiming basically the same amount of improvement in aerodynamics. And then what do you do next? You know, and that's where I think Envy has done a good job of standing out with doing things like the you know the the rounded shape of the sidewall to where it reduces pinch flats because they were the first to promote that and have something, you know, like to me, that's a unique selling feature. And then, you know, you mentioned the zip wheels too, or the zip mountain bike wheels where it's, they're kind of the first ones to say like, Hey, flex is okay. Like not all flex yeah. is bad, which is definitely yeah. a unique take on a, a pretty much saturated category. Yeah. For 20 years, we've heard yeah. you want every part of the bike to be stiffer and stiffer and stiffer. And then they're saying, oh, no, ours flexes. And that's why it's good. But it's flexing in the right way. Uh, that's just a totally different take. And um, I, well, I think that's, for them, it's smart. That's not totally true. We've had there have been a number of companies along the way in various things like downhill suspension forks for a while. We're getting to the point where they were so stiff that the pro racers thought that they were too stiff and ricocheting mm -hmm. off rocks rather than, you know, tracking over them. So. There is there is definitely a limit, and it's I think we're starting to get to that point where the construction of tires, well, sorry, not tires, of wheels, frames, forks, that sort of thing, have gotten so advanced that they're too stiff now in certain applications or for certain rider weights, and now they're starting to dial it back in. So I think it's a good good direction for the industry to take. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, since you mentioned suspension forks, that's uh, we can always jump back to gravel if there's more you guys want to add, but. What I noticed is there were not any major suspension launches at Sea Otter. There was a couple of updates or, you know, like I think DVO went to a new, they have a 29er version of one of their forks now where they only had 27.5 before, but there were a lot of these small incremental improvements, you know, like maybe new greases and oils inside, like with RockShox, they had the new um, uh, seal materials that reduce friction, new things, and then like uh, Fox had couple of tiny updates inside you know they changed the size of some of the pistons and the new um step cast 32 it just got a stiffer crown which they say is now as stiff as the 34 for an ultralight cross-country fork and it only added a few grams and that was you know as far as suspension that's what i saw was nothing major 
but everything's getting just a little bit better. Yep. The only uh, crazy thing I saw wasn't brand new, but that uh, structure dual linkage mountain bike that, you know, I think they debuted it a couple of years ago, but now they're like, hey, we, you can actually buy one of these things and they look crazy. Yeah. You know, it looks like well, and then there's... Batman's bike and it's <laughs> people were digging it. <laughs> then there's obviously the, the trust message as well. I mean, that's not technically new to us since we've posted it so far, but as far as like a uh, consumer debut, it was one of the biggest uh, outings for that fork. And judging by the amount of traffic that that booth had pretty much the entire time and the amount of bikes that were going out, it seems like there was a lot of interest in people at least trying it. And, uh, you know, they had their, their interesting little demo set up there where, you, you know, you try to push down on the fork and it's pretty stiff, but then you push, push the wheel into an object and push down on the, on the handlebars and then it flexes right away. Mm-hmm. It was pretty, pretty interesting. We've actually got one of those in. We'll uh, get it mounted on a bike here and test it fairly soon and see what we actually think about it. But as far as uh, suspension, that was probably one of the more interesting things at the show. Do we want to jump back to gravel or have we kind of beat that one? I mean, there's there's things that, like, when we were talking, actually, when you were talking about sort of there being two markets of gravel or two two categories, so to speak, you know, that's sort of, I've always sort of been of that mindset, you know, like, Jason, the gravel cyclist, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's certainly in the, the race category, right? Like, he's out there doing dirty Kanza, like, you know, these m- massive, long road rides or gravel rides, and... Uh, you know, he wants a bike that is basically a road bike with with bigger tires. Whereas I'm, when I'm out riding a gravel bike, what I envision it as is a, you know, a mountain bike that I can easily pedal to trails. So I want something that is very capable off road, yet still pedals better on the road than a mountain bike does. Um, so I'm often drawn to some of these bikes that have suspension, that have maybe a dropper post, uh, you know, like much bigger tires than somebody like Jason would probably run for one of his races. And uh, I think we're starting to see that sort of uh, expand. And one of the interesting, one of the more interesting things at the show for me was a bike that I'd actually had leading up to it was the the Atso Wahila C, uh, which is uh, a new carbon gravel bike from basically the bike company of Wolf Tooth Components. And it, has the ability to sort of morph into exactly what you want. Like it, it can be that big tire gravel mountain bike with a dropper post, or it can also be a race ready gravel bike with short chain stays and adjustability. So it was a pretty interesting bike mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, bridge the gap between the two categories. So how Another, are they doing that? Is it adjustable chain stay length or? So they have, they're using what they're calling the tuning chip dropout system. Um, it's a three position dropout that has uh you know it's a chip and the dropout can move forward or back i think it's 10 millimeter increments to each each position so you have a total of 20 millimeter chainstay length adjustment right on yeah and that was uh i noticed there was other like chapter two has a similar kind of three position dropout system for their their new gravel bike and yeah like adjustability like that is good um you mentioned suspension and it got me thinking I'd totally forgotten about the Niner. Uh, what is it? The MCR, the magic carpet ride, you know, they're yeah. coming out with a full suspension gravel bike later this year, which should be the first kind of mass production anyway, like proper full suspension gravel bike. And they're currently showing it with the, uh, Fox AX fork, 
But what I noticed is, yeah. and it just dawned on me, is like that was or maybe the only gravel bike I saw out there from anybody with a suspension fork. Like there was almost no other bikes with, you know, either using the AX or the Lau fork. Um, everybody's kind of running just bigger and bigger tires for that all day adventure bike. And that's, I, maybe that's even going to become the next big category is a drop bar adventure bike. Even though we've had something like that for a while, I feel like you're going to end up with gravel race, kind of general gravel. And then like, big old adventure you know where you can fit like almost maybe even a 225 or you know 29 by 2.2 mm-hmm. or something in there and still get some big flare drop bars yeah and on that note the uh the rodeo adventure labs they had the they had the trail donkey up to the 3.0 version now and they were showing one that was like this swiss army knife transformer version that had two sets of wheels two sets of bars it was uh one version with flat bars with a redshift suspension stem and 27.5 wheels with big fat tires. And I can't remember if it had a suspension or dropper post or not, but then you could switch over. They had these uh, really slick hydraulic quick disconnects for the brake lines, and you could switch to a drop bar with 700C uh, wheels and you know maybe 35 millimeter tires, uh, no suspension stem, and they were selling this as like, you can, you can do whatever you want. It was still a, in a prototype kind of deal. I don't, I don't know if they were gonna sell it, but it was a really cool concept. Yeah, speaking of redshift and suspension stems and stuff, they were showing something interesting that probably would be kind of good for that gravel and you know adventure bike market, which was a suspension seat post dropper post. So you can drop it; it has a little bit of built-in suspension. Which, you know, it's it seems funny, but it's there's probably going to be a market for that as these big tired drop bar bikes grow in popularity. Mm-hmm. Could be. It looked like it had a pretty tall stack height, like in terms of you know, the amount of seat posts that you would have to have exposed on the frame to run it. Um, so that, that could be my only uh, concern to fitting that, but it did look pretty interesting. Yeah. And then they had their, their crazy kitchen sink bar that had, you know, the option of the additional handhold at the front plus their drop bar grip system, which it was one of the wildest looking drop bar setups that I've seen out there. Huh. And we've posted that, right? So people can go yes. to the bike room yep. and just search Redshift and find all that. Yep. Um, and so while we're talking about bars, then I wanted to just drop some of the brands so people can go back and find some of the things we're talking about. Greg, you mentioned the riser drop bar. That was the FSA one, correct? Or I think I else. saw one from, uh, Richie also. Cool. Um, and there was one more I can't think of, there was more than one, but definitely Richie, definitely FSA. Um, maybe some house brands too. uh, brands doing their own OEM spec kind of thing. But yeah, they're, they're out there. Very cool. All right. Well, one of the other big things we noticed is the whole van life thing. You know, like in the years past, we've seen Van Do It come out. But this year, there was a lot of, you know, campers and trailers and customized sprinters and stuff. And even some overlanding gear, some cooking and camping gear. There's a lot. Like, what I saw some cool stuff, but I'll, let's start with you guys. Like, what were some of the coolest things you saw from that realm? I think, Zach, you saw, you did a thing on Traeger Grills, right? Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> – so anyone who has come by the house here knows that I love my Camp Chef pellet grill. Uh, I got one of those as a review item, and I've never stopped using it. I mean, it's just like – it sounds dumb, but like as, as a, a, an ability to cook amazing food after a ride, it's pretty incredible. And now Traeger has this little portable thing that you can carry with it. You can put it in your van, put it at the campsite turn it on, 
you could have somebody there watching it while you're riding or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. But, you know, it's a tiny little portable unit that you'll get this crazy smoke flavor and uh, basically zero work at all. So I don't know. I didn't, I didn't realize with them you actually have to have a power source, though. And the guy yeah. showed me they have this power inverter that you attach to the uh, your car battery. Yeah. And he was saying it doesn't need a lot. It's just like a slow draw. But the, he was saying you get like 10 hours or so um, before yeah. you drain your battery. So. <laughs> <laughs> before you can drive home and then yeah, you need to cook in the wild <laughs> don't do yeah. a brisket <laughs> right. so real yeah, quick that, just for somebody who I doesn't mean, know what is it what's a pellet grill why is it how is that different from a regular grill so instead of using you know big chunks of wood to smoke your food it uses these compressed wood pellets and you pour them in a hopper and then why you need power is because there's a like a microprocessor controlled uh driver or an auger at the bottom that feeds pellets into the grill as you're you're smoking so you set the temperature say you want to you know smoke a, a pork shoulder at 225 degrees it will automatically maintain that temperature and feed feed the pellets into it as it gets hotter or colder and so it maintains a perfect uh temperature all the way through the cook That's awesome. so it's just uh you know like true barbecue aficionados will probably like turn their nose at a pellet grill because it's sort of like it's it's the e-bike of of smokers, <laughs> <laughs> but but it works so well and it requires so little effort and pretty much anyone can make a uh, an incredible meal out of it. So it's pretty interesting in that regard. Sweet. So I saw Dometic was out with their little uh, you know portable fridges. So if you're you got a van or even like an SUV, you could just kind of throw one of these in the back, plug it into your cigarette lighter, and you've got a, a cooler or even a freezer. They had one that was like. I'm pretty sure it was a freezer, so you could bring popsicles for the kids or, you know, adult nice. popsicles for after the ride. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those were cool, and they've kind of got all different sizes. And then, but tents and sleeping arrangements were a big deal, too, the rooftop tents. You know, the, yeah, rooftops and also uh, smaller trailers. I think people are trying to hit lower price points. Uh, there was a cool brand, I think, called Escape Pod. Yep. Uh, it was, like, all one word, but it's these two-wheel small trailers just for i think two people um relatively sparse but uh good quality and um a couple rooftop brands and then i was surprised to see even big brands like winnebago was out there they drove they had like at least a half a dozen full-size sprinters from iowa that they drove out there and uh, full staff and like for a you know a niche uh, thing like a bike show at least for them they're, they're a wide-ranging company and um they were they were cool. They were seemed very excited to be there, and uh, they were showing some. You know, here's where you can put your bike rack, and they they were into it. So, I think the uh, the van life thing is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. I mean, it's it it's really just an extension of what people have been doing for decades, right? Like everyone loves to take their bike, go somewhere, ride, camp out, and it's just you know it's a kind of a meeting of two worlds now, where it's just getting easier with more uh, creature comforts that you can bring to your campsite or the, the trailhead or what have you and have a better ride and have a better experience afterwards. So I think it's a, it's a good movement for the industry. Cool. So there's two really cool things I saw. One was this little startup. I think they were only like six months old, maybe a year, Luno Life. And they made inflatable air mattresses that are actually shaped to fit in the back of most you know small SUVs or wagons. So it's kind of shaped to go around the wheel well. And then they had, it wasn't just like the sleeping pad, but they had inflatable 
uh, like almost like giant squarish balloons that you would drop down into the wheel well, I mean the, sorry, the foot space behind the drivers and passenger seats so that you had, you could take advantage of the extra room and they would support the head mm-hmm. end of the air mattress. So you, you gain like an extra almost foot of sleeping space. And I think it said it would, you know, comfortably fit somebody up to like six, six, and then they make little lights and other accessories to kind of turn your car into a hotel and then the other cool one is so you know Tula very recently small hotel bought, yeah small hotel very small hotel about, about the size we usually get for the four yeah. of us at seattle right uh, no <laughs> anyway um and then yeah so Tuli recently bought tapui and so tapui did have a new little pop-up tent that doubles as a cargo box and you know we've got some video of that on our youtube channel but then um the cool thing that Thule had to kind of help you get up to some of these things is a expandable ladder that would actually suction cup to the side of your van. So it's not something you leave on the van or permanently attach. But the funny thing is the van that they had was done in that like kind of orange peel, you know, off-road, super durable paint. So they couldn't actually suction cup it to the van to show it off. <laughs> or fail. <laughs> yeah. But that van was so badass. So I'll have some pictures of that. I've, I've still got my little vehicle roundup i'll have up before uh this episode goes live so people can just kind of see some of this cool stuff um and then the last little one i saw was from climate which is spelled k-l-y-m-i-t they had some really lightweight sleeping pads that sort of you know you could probably inflate them with like 20 seconds of blowing and then you've got this thing that'll pack down to you know super super small which is perfect for bike packing or car camping will it inflate with a hair dryer uh, it might as I recall, that's what we were doing in the, the hotel to get uh, Zach a place to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Zach's just shaking his head right now. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that was, you know, there was uh, there was even some kind of like add-on camper things that would go in the bed of a truck. So we've got a picture of a few of those. And yeah, man, it was, van life's super fun. And, you know, the Van Duet stuff, they actually did have a new model called the Van Duet think do or go i forget one of them's do one of them's go and the new one is designed to where you can really kind of turn it into like a workshop so it's not like a full-on built-out bike shop like some of the difference like beeline or um the other one but it's set up to where you know if you kind of want to run a business out of it you can use these little folding fold down bunk beds you could fold one down and use it as a desk and then you throw the mattress on it and it's a bed you can use like this side storage mount stuff to keep all your tools or equipment or whatever it is you're doing. You know, it could be like a fitness studio or you could be massage or, or bike shop, whatever. But it was super cool the way they were laying it out because it was total reconfiguration from the original ones we've seen over the past couple of years. Nice. Yeah, they do a good job building those vans out. What else, guys? What else did you see? Hmm. Well, kind of going along the same line of thought and transporting your bike and getting to the trailhead and that sort of thing. You know, there were a number of new bike rack products that were pretty interesting. Uh, the dovetail bike rack was, it has to be the lightest hitch rack that I've ever seen. Uh, they had a single bike hitch rack version that was seven pounds. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, it's like, it's super minimal. You know, it, it, it clamps down on, you put the, the crank arm into a, a C channel and you know, it's padded around the edges, so it won't scuff up your crank, supposedly. And then there's a clamp that uh, threads down from the back that holds it in place. And then the front tire is held on with a Velcro strap and, you know, like basically a roof roof rack channel. 
Um, you know, certainly there are there are more secure bike racks out there, but in terms of something that was the absolute lightest weight possible, like say you're, you know, you can't physically lift a 50 pound bike rack to put it on your car. Like this was pretty interesting. And especially the fact that it left, you know, the, the main plug in the receiver and then the bike rack itself attaches to that plug with a dovetail joint, which is where they get the name. And so you can actually just use the little uh, removal tool, pop the rack off, leave the plug in your car. You don't need any other tools. You don't need a wrench to remove it or install it on your car. And so you just pop the rack off, throw it in your garage, and you're ready to go with a car without a bike rack. So it was a pretty interesting design. That is cool. And the other one that um, they actually had, they had this at NABS, but it was such a poor display of it that, like, I tried to take pictures and I just could not get a good one. But the Saris bike rack with the storage compartment was, yes. that's an idea. Like, like, how has nobody done that before? Because mm-hmm. It's a good question. I wonder, I mean... I feel like weight limits have to come into play. Uh, the the Saris uh, Freedom Super Clamp, uh, which is the bike rack that that is based off of, is a super burly rack. Uh, you know, that's that's the precursor to that is the one that I've been using for for years now, and it's survived you know multiple Midwest winters, fat biking with a ton of salt and slush and grossness on it. Uh, so it's been I think to date, it's been the most durable rack that I've used. And so now they have the option to just throw a cargo basket onto the, you know, you take the four bike rack and you get rid of the first two bikes by the vehicle and you throw on a cargo rack. And then you have, I think it's 125 pounds of cargo weight that you can add to it. So it's perfect size for your Yeti cooler. If you're uh, of that crowd, Uh, just make sure it's locked down. (laughs) But uh (laughs) But yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting design, and, and the fact that it's available as an accessory as well means you can get a four bike rack and use it as a four bike rack for the most time. But then if you have a trip where you only need two bikes and additional cargo space, you can throw it on there and and you know mount your cooler to the outside of the vehicle. It was a pretty interesting idea. Sweet, Greg. Any cool racks or anything like that? Um, I've got some drivetrain comments that's switching gears um but that's nothing <laughs> that's in terms of not racks. a bike rack <laughs> yep tyler no. i think you covered this one the the latchet uh truck bed oh uh, yeah yeah that one was super neat because i like i walked by it a few times and i'm like oh it looks okay so they just had this little thing but then when you actually look at how it works it's pretty clever because if you've got a pickup truck you drop the tailgate down and then so where the tailgate there's normally you know two little posts mounted to the sides of the truck. And then when you close the tailgate, there's little uh, notches that go over those posts. And then that's how you lock it, right? And so when you release the handle, it releases the clamp on those posts and it all opens up. So basically using the posts and the notches that are already on your truck, this thing slots into those and clamps onto the notches and it secures into place to create, you know, about maybe a foot and a half, two feet of extra space on the back of your truck. So if you've got a short bed pickup or you just want a little more room to carry stuff in the bed plus your bikes, this creates effectively a second tailgate that you can drape your uh, mountain bikes over or even road bikes. And they're working on some fork mounts for road bikes that won't work with a, you know, a hangover system. Um, so yeah, that was super cool and it folds down to almost nothing. So you could almost just fold it down and throw it behind the seats in your pickup if you got like a small crew cab or something. And then, um, 
you know, just real quick note. So Yakima has their overhang or hangover. I can't remember which one they call it, but you know, when you where you hang the bikes, the mountain bikes from their forks upright, and then North Shore Racks has been doing that for a while, and I forget all the little details, but North Shore has updated theirs a little bit. They made it uh, a little bit taller, I think, but somehow still easier for people to get smaller bikes up onto them or for shorter people to get the bikes up on there. So there's a few updates to the North Shore one that carries, you know, like up to six bikes as well. Yeah. Which is pretty That's pretty cool. much the only way you're getting six bikes on the back of a vehicle like that. Yeah, safely. <laughs> well, you know, or some of the ones where you can throw them over the bed too. Like I think the Latchet one would hold up yeah. to six bikes on the bigger version. Um, so, yeah, but, yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, nice. drivetrain, Greg, what do you got? Uh, just kind of a general observation. Maybe you guys can add to this, but I was just uh, I mentioned this briefly before, but just so many different brands aside from, uh, you know, Shimano and SRAM and uh, the big ones, it was like Microspline, uh, or sorry, not Microspline, Microshift, sorry, uh, TRP. There was a 12-speed group from uh, TRW Active that was selling for something like $350. And uh, I guess it's it's just surprising that it's kind of become the Wild West and everyone's trying to get in with, with the railers and shifters and uh, different free hubs and going up to 13-speed. And uh, what do you guys think? Well, I noticed, uh, so I have a couple of theories on it, but I'll tell you the one I saw too. That So Rotor has their hydraulic shifting unit, and now they, they had a mountain bike version of that out on display, which uses the same derailleur and the same uh, hoses to connect. It was just a different shifter, and it was actually a pretty clever shifter idea because it had two different thumb positions. You only need one lever for that. It's kind of like the, um, they're going to hate it that I call it this, but it's like the SRAM double tap, right? Like you push it a little bit to release or you push it more to engage and move the derailleur to an easier cog. But that's, I mean, that's just how it works. And it's easy for people to grasp that concept to compare it to something they know. So what this one with the mountain bike one is you have the main paddle position for your thumb, which works really well when you're riding in a normal position. But then when you're like going downhill and you're kind of pushed yourself off the back of the bike and you got your saddle dropped, it had a second position for that for your thumb to hit that was way more ergonomic and easy to reach if you need the shift on the downhill. So it was pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's a fully hydraulic system. So we've already covered that. We've got video up on that as well, which is neat. And, yeah, that's a 13-speed um, system as well, which they're using their own hub because they had to create space for that 13th cog. But, yeah, the um, I think the days of the hop-up kits – are sort of gone and now brands you know like trp is jumping into it and so my theory on why rotor and trp would be getting into this and even fsa is you know that's shimano only wants to sell to oem customers that are going to stock a full shimano group sram only wants to sell if you're going to stock a full sram group so for somebody like trp who is only doing brakes or rotor who is only doing cranks and chain rings to be able to get oem spec you know, and same for FSA and all the other brands, it's getting harder and harder because, um, you know, the big ones that have been doing complete drivetrain and brake systems forever really don't want to have their stuff mix and match. And they're all doing more system system units, right? Like look at SRAM, you know, they're doing, their Eagle group is built as a system and they really reinforce that message that everything is designed to work perfectly together. We can't guarantee how this is going to work when you're introducing third-party components. And so... It's in my mind, this is how brands like TRP and Rotor and FSA are going to 
keep getting spec is to have a complete group with brakes and drivetrain and everything that they can take to, you know, track specialized nine or pick a brand and say, look, this is, we want to put this in and we want you guys to spec this. And now we can offer you everything that you need to spec a complete bike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The TRP stuff was pretty interesting. Like they're clearly getting very close to a production worthy group, but they're still, uh, still being coy about the whole thing. It sounded like they they wanted to make sure that it was, you know, bulletproof before they launched it to consumers, which makes sense. I mean, if you're somebody like TRP and you're going against Shimano and SRAM, you better come correct and have, have it ready to go. <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't hurt that they're having Hu Gwynn test it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have some, some big names right in the group. Um, you know, they had a lot of a lot of various prototypes floating around the event and seems like uh seems like they're gonna have it pretty well dialed by the time it launches cool did you get a chance to click around and, and shift it at all or just look at it no <laughs> they said, Don't i tried touch. and it got taken away very quickly <laughs> <laughs> i love it when that happens yeah Mm, yeah. I wasn't even supposed to notice the fact that it had a TRP shifter on one of the bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I, there was a few things I noticed that they asked us definitely not to post, not with drivetrains, but some bikes and some other things. That, um, but yeah, there is there's one e-bike. I'm trying to find a little more information on it because there was a really well-known pro mountain biker, or the, you know, an, an ex-pro downhill guy that was is supposedly behind this, but I want to get my story straight before I, I post it. So, but it was a really, really interesting looking bike. Yeah. While we're on the subject of e-bikes, the Heim built prototype concept thing that I saw was pretty, pretty intriguing where, you know, it's basically this guy, John Heim working out of his garage. He's a former uh, turbocharger engineer and like self self proclaimed tinkerer and maker and uh, he's been working on these e-bikes that have a substantial amount of regenerative braking with a, you know, with a center drive motor. And, you know, he, he claims that he's been seeing like 30 to 50 percent regeneration possible, uh, which he's measuring through dual uh, RC car power motors <laughs> launch or power meters that are strapped to his top tube. So one's one's programmed to show exactly how much energy is expended and one is showing exactly how much energy is going back into the system. Um, so like in terms of e-bikes and technology for me, that was probably the most interesting thing that I saw at the show. Yeah, that's really cool. I think the, the trend that I'm seeing is more and more integration in a way, you know, like the Donnelly one, which was a little bit of a surprise because they've had their gravel and cross bikes and now they've got an e-gravel bike coming out in a little bit later this year, maybe I think late summer maybe. And, um, yeah, if you just took a quick glance at that, you really couldn't tell it was an e-bike, except that you know it had a bigger, fatter down tube. And it's, you know, Fazua is making it pretty easy with their motor system because it's such a compact motor, and then it really can be built. The entire battery motor power system can really be built into the down tube with minimal effect on bottom bracket junction size, so people can still get a normal chainstay length. And that was, um, I think, that's what's going to drive that market forward for. Some, but I'll tell you, so anecdotally, you know, when the drop bar e-bikes came out, you know, gravel, road, whatever, I'm like, probably along with most everybody else, this collective shaking of the head, like, oh my God, why? Like, <laughs> you know, mountain bikes, I kind of get, and they're super fun, but like a road bike, it's sort of about fitness, right? But then mm -hmm. we were down in Florida over my kid's spring break and went on a group ride, 
and we get like we're going across this one bridge. You know, Florida's flat, but it can be super windy. And we're going across this one bridge, and all of a sudden, this guy just charges to the front. He's like, "Oh, I, I got this. I'm going to pull you guys across." Because it was a long bridge, and it was a flat bridge. It was just basically going across like a, a canal. And um, he's just crushing it, and we're like pulling along at like 25, 26 into a headwind, and we're just staying tucked behind him. And as he's peeling off, I notice, oh, he's on a, a e road bike, and it was, yeah, I don't know what he did to get the top speed because there were points when he was cruising along easily, 26, 27, 28 on this thing. But, yeah, you know what was cool is you could tell looking at the guy, like he's not maybe the fittest dude in the world, but he was hanging on this group ride with a bunch of super fit people, and it was awesome, right? Like nobody cared, and I think that's that's what's going to – that mentality is going to change. People aren't going to care. Like everyone was just stoked that he was able to join the ride, and, yeah, like <laughs> – it was awesome. You're thanking him. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, yeah, we, that we, e-bike, we were thanking him for that pull for sure. <laughs> well, guys, what else is worth mentioning? I guess uh, continuing along with the the spy shot of TRP stuff conversation, Manitou and Sun Ringley had some pretty interesting products uh, that weren't on display but were visible if you knew where to look. Uh, <laughs> and it looks like they have some some uh, new longer travel suspension products like a long travel single crown fork with what appear to be larger stanchions than what they're running right now plus a long travel air rear shock with a massive piggyback reservoir on it and both of those bikes had uh, new sun ringlet wheels mounted to them which the hubs were pretty interesting because they were labeled with super bubba so anyone who's uh, an old school mtv guy or girl uh, might recognize the Super Bubba name and uh, coming back with full purple anodized and who knows what other uh, features will be inside of it. But it was it was a pretty interesting find for sure. Very cool. And that's not the only cool thing they had over at the Hayes booth. That J-Unit stuff was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're in the market for building a kid's bike that actually wants to make your, your kid ride, the J-Unit stuff was very intriguing. You know, rather than uh, put, you know, try to make tiny grips to fit a normal size handlebar so you end up with a very thin, hard grip, uh, they kind of went backwards. They started with the diameter of the grip that they wanted to create and then created a handlebar that was sized for those grips. But then what they did is they added a plastic flange to the end of the grip that was the same outer diameter as a standard brake clamp. So you can use adult size brakes. So then when the kid outgrows those handlebars, you can still use the brakes on a normal handlebar. Um, you know, the, the center of the bar was still 31.8, so it mounts to normal stems. Obviously, you want a really short stem in that application. And then the, uh, the brake itself, they have a new SFL or short finger lever version for anyone, for, you know, adults with small hands or kids. And so you can end up with a, a perfectly dialed cockpit, which uh, was a good addition to the rest of their J unit line with a suspension fork and wheels and pretty much everything you need to dial in a perfect little kid's bike. Awesome. Yeah. So the other, speaking of kids bikes, uh, Trailcraft had a new one with, you know, they've done, I think when they first started, they were at the 24 inch wheel and then they got 26 and then they have 27.5 and even 27.5 plus all built around younger riders. I think, you know, kind of up to about 14 years old at the top end, depending on how tall your kids are. And then this year they showed off the new a new twenty inch 
hardtail mountain bike as well. And so it's what I love about that brand is, you know, when they started, they were, they went to Stan's no tubes and said, look, we want you guys to roll a no tubes, tubeless ready rim at 24 inches. And then they've expanded that, you know, like, I mean, Stan's had 26, but now you can get a 20 inch kid's bike with like super short cranks, everything sized appropriately. And actually 20 inch stands, no tubes, tubeless ready rims with proper uh, mountain bike, everything, you know, super good tires on it. So it's, it's pretty awesome. You know, you can pretty much grow from the time you're able to pedal your own bike with Trailcraft all the way up until you're a, you know, a tween young teen. Man, kids' bikes are getting so good these days. Like, <laughs> I'm not even that old, and, like, the bike that I started on was Stone Age compared to what kids have these days. It's yeah, just like you see the, see the videos with these kids just absolutely sending it. We're just going to have a generation of monsters on our hands before you know it i think the only other thing i have is kind of wheel related um which we touched on a bit but uh fast engaging hubs are all over the place with you know i think industry nine really shook things up with the hydra i believe boyd was showing a new hub that was uh not quite that fast engaging but still really good and i think some of the traditional brands are kind of feeling the squeeze with needing to keep up with these these newer uh innovating brands um so that was cool, and then or it's just cool to see that develop. And I also noticed kind of a, a distinct lack of open mold Chinese wheels. It seems like every trade show there's at least a new brand that's kind of selling the same thing. And um, my my take is kind of once the the aero wheel patents from Zip and Head ran out, everything is kind of on a level playing field uh, in terms of the aerodynamics game and the the carbon rim game and it's uh, I guess it's a good time to be a consumer because there's a ton of options. But it's if you're starting a new wheel company, boy, I feel for you because it's it's super crowded. Yeah, I don't know if it's a good time to be a consumer because there are so many options. You kind of get analysis paralysis where you're like, right. what do you even what do you even buy anymore? I yeah. mean, the, it's just as bad for the shop owner when he, you can't possibly stock even a, a tenth of the market out there. So like, you got to really pick your brands and and uh stand behind them which is either a good or a bad thing for the consumer so yeah and i think it's it's also tough in a way because of uh disc brakes now where the the braking surface used to be a big part of the wheel story and and what could make a wheel good or bad and now that it's all done by a disc brake a lot of wheels are it's just harder to differentiate what you know feels good and bad and um it's at least from a a review standpoint when I'm reviewing disc brake wheels, that having removed the the braking part of the review, I'm like, I just have less to say now. This is, a, it's kind of I'm, funny. I'm happy, very happy to have removed that braking surface from the rim. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm, I'm riding a set of uh, Zip Firecrest uh, 303s right now without a braking surface, and it's just so much nicer not having to worry about braking on carbon. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's, yeah, it's. Uh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, speak, speaking of that, you know, that was another thing I noticed too is uh, rim brake road bikes. I can't think of a single one that was launched at Sea Otter. No. And even recently, with you know, like that new Pinarello that just launched, um, mm-hmm. you know, they have a, a disc brake and a rim brake version. But my hunch is they're going to be selling far more of the disc brake ones, especially in the U.S. I think Europeans tend to be a little more traditional in that sense but even that you know even all the italian brands and the european brands are they're all launching disc brake road bikes now and it's 
we're in the final stretches of not seeing rim brake road bikes anymore at the high end, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, in the next yeah. four or five years, it's just they're going to be outdated, which I don't know why anybody would buy a really high end rim brake road bike in this day and age, knowing that in a couple of years it's going to be obsolete. Yeah. I mean, there'd be a lot of people out there that have a lot of money invested in, you know, high end wheels that are rim brake and quick release only, and also cassette and hub uh measurements and you know what have you but then again do you just get rid of all those things and start from scratch i mean like i've just built up this uh y cycles pr with the new you know sram force it's access group and a zip uh component group and it's just i mean to me it is the the like prototypical modern road bike and it is so good in almost every way and it makes me never want to get on a bike with rim brakes and you know quick releases and and whatever again you know it's just from the tire clearance you know i'm running 28s on it right now with wide rims and there's there's room for 30s maybe 32s um you know but everything about it is just so good so yeah i don't know it's things are changing all right, well, I want to wrap this episode up with a couple of cool things everybody saw. And if you guys need a second, I can start with two or three of my favorite things that I saw out of the Seattle this year. The first is, and a lot of this is small stuff, but like Cali helmets, I mean, I'm a fan of their helmets. I think for the technology that they build into their product and the, the real tight focus on safety at a very affordable price point, Cali is just crushing it. And they're new, and they're, you know, as of like last year when they kind of redid their stuff, some of the new designs they showed at Interbike that are getting into the marketplace over the last couple of months, like they even look really, really good now, which, you know, they never look bad, but the, the colors and the fit and the finish are all dialed. But what's cool is, you know, like their owner Brad has always been big on safety, but for him, the MIPS system was sort of a, uh, not the best alternative it added a lot of weight a lot of expense and so he's been looking at these softer materials and they you know it keeps iterating and so they've got a new version i forget exactly what the material is called but there's we've got the post up with photos and a little video and it's just this squirmy little material that sits on the inside and it has two things it has two benefits right like first is it's gonna squirm with your head and it's gonna help the helmet twist when you wreck so that you're mitigating that um rotational force which is essentially the same idea as what MIPS and these other anti-rotation technologies are supposed to do. But the other thing is it's it's really soft and it actually adds some cushioning to help slow that impact. And that's really what the helmets are all about is reducing the impact speed and the forces before they reach your brain. And so it's, it's kind of cool because you get two benefits out of it. It's super lightweight too and it's it doesn't add a ton of cost. Like their new helmet is way, way under 100 bucks, and it looks awesome. So that was number one. The other cool thing I saw was One Up, which with their new EDC stem, so everyday carry stem. You know, they came out with that EDC tool that could fit inside the steerer tube of your fork, but you had to have an alloy steerer, so it wouldn't work with carbon or steel, and you had to sort of face the inside to get some thread so that you could insert this tool because when you're taking out that star nut and top cap, you had to have a way to compress the system to take out the play in the headset. And that was, I think, a stumbling block for a lot of people to probably void the warranty of your fork <laughs> to install this melting tool. <laughs> yeah. And so they came out with a stem that puts that compression system on the bottom of the stem to, you know, take up the slack in the head tube. So it was a really, really clever fix, super simple. It adds minimal weight and complexity. 
and then it lets you hide their tool in the steer tube, which is really cool. Okay, and then the last thing I saw, and I saw a lot of cool bikes, you know, but the one that stood out in my head was one of the first ones I walked up to in the show, which was the new Fazari road bike. And it's really just, you know, they've got a cool construction story, but the thing is, it's fully modern. It's got big tire clearance. It's super lightweight. It's disc brake. And it's, you know, the way they went about making it is cool because they were testing this thing to cross-country mountain bike standards for impact and strength. And yet here it is, this like ultra light disc brake road bike. So for me, it was sort of like they took all the things you would want in a modern road bike and made it. And then because it's Fazari, you know, for better or worse, our consumer direct brand, it's super affordable, right? And it's, yeah, those were some of my highlights. What about you guys? Two for me would probably be the, uh, the Otso Wahila C, even though, that bike was launched at Sea Otter, but I had it for about a month prior as a prototype uh, to get quite a few miles on it. And it's just, it is a super versatile gravel dirt drop mountain bike, uh, you know, even even road bike. I mean, due to the, uh, the tuning chip system, you can run it with 30 millimeter road slicks and it shortens up the chainstay and raises the bottom bracket up a little bit so you don't clip your pedals around the turns. Uh, it was just, uh, it was an incredible bike. They did a really, really good job creating that. And then, uh, second, I think the, uh, technically again, this was one that was, we saw at Sea Otter, but it wasn't launched until yesterday was the, the new element Rome GPS. Uh, you know, so it's their, their replacement of the element. It's got a larger, well, it's got a, a large color screen on it. It's got new, uh, navigation features and just overall just retains the simplicity that I I really dig from from Wahoo that you basically don't need to even look at the instruction manual you just turn it on pair it with your phone and go out and ride so all good things nice I think for me uh, something that wasn't it wasn't new for Sea Otter but it was kind of new to me and still new to the industry was uh, a brand called uh, Batch Bicycles it's actually a Huffy brand and I met them they were very nice people. And just their business model, I think, is is really cool because what they're doing is the brand is only through IBDs, and they're trying to give them a price that can compete with big box stores. So I think their most expensive bike is $500, and uh, they started about $200. They've got some kids' bikes with, like, Disney characters on it, and uh, they really are trying to get people into bike shops to buy other accessories, to buy service, and uh, just really give a, a new option for, for dealers to have – a legitimate com- competing product with the with a full margin too. So I think that's just a, a really cool idea. And then uh, as far as the the tech side, I really like the new Mavic. Gosh, I can't remember the name, but they have a new gravel wheel. Do you guys remember? Just the All Road they... series, I think. Yeah, but they're doing. You know, they've of course they're known for just outstanding quality in general, and uh, they're doing uh, diameter specific rim profiles where the 650B version is wider and. I don't know if it's deeper or shallower, but just a really nice high-end, you know, of course, UST tubeless gravel wheels, just uh, really sweet. And then if I can throw in a third, I really enjoyed the uh, the pizza booth. I can't remember who it was, <laughs> but I, I stopped by like 10 times to grab a slice. They were giving it out all day. So whoever you were, thank you for, for keeping us going. I really enjoyed the KS booth with, uh, with the tri-tip. Uh, oh, and the, was, the grilled corn was so good. <laughs> yeah. 
about the only food I got during each day it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was clutch. Yeah, we definitely got to give KS a shout out because I think they fed most of us most every day. So awesome. <laughs> if you need a dropper post and you want to help keep the bike groomer team fed, support KS suspension. <laughs> Um, it's just too too hard to resist. It yeah, so well, good. and they're so friendly. You know, you go by yeah. Rick's like basically putting a plate of food in your lap. Yeah, hey, can I get you a beer, a soda, seltzer water? What do you want? What do you want? It's awesome. So, guys, thanks. Good people. Um, hey, Kurt, so I just want to point everyone back. You know, we mentioned being at the IBIS launch at the beginning of the show. And if you didn't catch last week's episode of this podcast, it is probably one of the best interviews we've ever had on anything I've ever done. Just the history of mountain biking that you will hear and some of the stories about how the products that we ride have come to be you've got to catch that episode so go back it's the one with ibis founder scott nickel and his partner hans heim it's incredible and if you like what you're hearing hit subscribe like it thumbs up leave a comment leave us a rating at uh whatever apple itunes stitcher wherever you listen to podcasts thanks a ton for tuning in and we will see you guys next week that's a wrap on this episode Tune in next time for another great ride. Be sure to follow at BikeRumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks and we will see you next time.